It's uh, good to see people here um, for this lecture today, so let me say welcome. Uh, my name is Sonia Livingstone. I'm professor in the Department of Media and Communications. In fact, I'm head of department there. And I'm going to be talking about a research field which I think illustrates many of the challenges of thinking like a social scientist. Uh, and that reflects the research that I've been doing in the last um, 10 or so years, but particularly in the last three years, which is to think about particular questions of risk reflecting the theme of this lecture and um, questions that arise for both research and public policy in terms of young people's experience of the internet and questions of risk. So I would like to start by um, thanking uh, Sage Publications for sponsoring this series, and I see several of them uh, are here today. Uh, I come in the series between last week's lecture, which was about uh, public perceptions of risk in a, range, in a range of different areas, and next week's lecture, which is about regulatory responses to risk, and I think that's positioned me rather well, because what I'd like to do is to begin with a question of public anxieties, particularly about children and the internet, give you some uh, understanding of how social, science, so social scientist researchers think then about the problem and the questions associated with children's online risk, and then end by giving you a flavour of some of the regulatory responses that are going on in Britain and in Europe. So you see how the research that we do within the social sciences transfers into the policy domain. So, my outline begins, as it were, with the question, or the way in which media and communication scholars especially think about uh, the rise of new media, uh, the question of media panics and moral panics, anxieties about what the media do to our society, and my pictures illustrate the sense that where once we had um, happy families drawn together in front of a rather predictable screen, uh, now we have children off in their bedrooms doing unknown things uh, with large array of media which parents and others may or may not understand very well. So I put the arrival of the internet into most homes in this country and many homes across the world into a context of really some quite considerable moral anxieties. Uh, and many of those focus particularly on the internet. And then I want to sort of move to how does the social scientist respond? In my case, how does somebody from the field of media and communications particularly respond? Though I was trained as a social psychologist, and I think that allows me a particular set of questions about thinking about children and families. Uh, and in a department of media and communications, I talk to people from sociology and politics and a range of other different disciplines. And there we come to a, a multidisciplinary, perhaps an interdisciplinary fusion of perspectives around uh, and contextualising the question of children's online risk in particular. So thinking like a social scientist, obviously we must turn both to theory, and I want to draw on Beck's theory of the risk society to frame this theme, and we must turn to evidence, and for that I draw on my project on, uh, which is called EU Kids Go Online, European Children as They Go Online on the Internet, uh, and to get some perspective from the evidence. And that allows us also, since it's a European project, to draw some comparisons with other countries, 
In other words, where does any one particular uh, group of children using the internet fall in a kind of a, a risk perspective? And comparisons with other risks. Where, how should we think about the risks that the internet poses to children in relation to the other risks that they face in the rest of their lives? So my conclusions will take us forward to new questions because answers are always provisional in the social sciences and we come to new questions as we develop our research and a rather thorny question of informing policy. Uh, policy in the domain particularly of children and the internet perhaps because it is framed by these anxieties, is often a very um, panicky and fraught policy in which um, many voices have uh, very contradictory things to say. So I shall try to end with some reflections and that might provoke your questions. But I'll start by going back. Uh, this is one of my uh, favourite quotes. Uh, it reminds us that society has always worried about every new cultural or medium, every new cultural form or medium, including, believe it or not, the waltz, which shocked the Times of London in 1816 for its voluptuous intertwining of the limbs and close compression of the bodies and so forth. Uh, in fact, before then and certainly after then, uh, a moral panic in society has often accompanied the arrival of any new medium and the internet is a perfect example of that. But the concept of the moral panic uh, was really uh, developed by Stan Cohen, who's um, until recently a professor of sociology here, when he was looking at the mods and rockers of the 1950s in Britain and trying to understand why a style of youth dress and fashion would generate a sense that society was really falling apart and that young people had no values and adults had lost control. So Cohen, in talking about moral panics, associated each cultural change, each medium change, with a sense that youth are going to the bad. And at the same time, others think about the arrival of each new medium as a threat not to youth going bad, but to the innocence of childhood. Ulrich Beck talks about children being the last area of enchantment in our otherwise disillusioned and cynical world. One of the first reactions then of social scientists is to critique the moral panics, to critique the headlines, not necessarily to say they are entirely unfounded, but to say it is our job to stand back, to ask about the evidence, to put the questions in perspective, uh, and to ask why it is that a particular new medium triggers um, particular anxieties. So the arguments from social scientists about, about moral panics generally have been that these are often a distraction, that we blame the new technology, we blame the new medium when really there are other social problems we should be worrying about more, uh, other perhaps more profound causes of uh, unhappiness or difficulty in childhood than the media. That moral panics often represent an enormous simplification of what are very complex issues around uh, media use, uh, not only because the media are themselves diverse uh, and complex, but also because they are brought into our lives in ways that we often make meaningful. Uh, and so what, what the medium becomes to us is partly a matter of how we have appropriated it. Often also within 
The moral panic there is a kind of victim blaming, and that often has a kind of a social class uh, angle. Often um, middle class people, one may imagine, sit around in committee rooms and government offices and worry about the state of working class youth. Um, often middle class folks feel it's not them, though the Times example contradicts me there. Here we are to worry about all girls going to the bad. Kirsten Trotner, in a very helpful article about media panics, about media panic, sorry, argues that the media amplify the moral panics in society through their headlines. Um, they particularly focus on panics about the media themselves. And yet they have their own kind of trajectory. Very often we begin by saying we must ban this medium, we must prevent access to this technology. And after a few years, and different sectors of society have begun to discuss the significance of the medium, we find instead people are beginning to say, actually, the public is a little more wise, the public has its own uh, skills and abilities to make sense of the media that it engages with. What we should be focusing our efforts on is education, making sure that people really understand the media that they engage with and that they have the skills to be critical of them when it's appropriate that they should be so. So there's a kind of a move very often from calls for grand, restrictive, top-down regulation to education and, um, as Jotner says, enlightenment. And that's exactly what's happening in relation to the internet now. We are really just moving from the point where, at least in Europe, people are calling for uh, restrictions to the internet, um, walled gardens, uh, bans on children having access and so forth, to putting ever more emphasis on ways in which children should be educated about the internet, understand critically exactly what kinds of resources they are coming to, and understand how to prevent access to certain things if that is appropriate for themselves or their family. So it's in that broad context of anxieties about each medium, uh, in fact from uh, the printing press, cinema, um, television, radio I think did not produce such anxieties, often it's associated with visual media, um, computer games, mobile phones and the internet. So within that context, um, one reason why there has been such a lot of anxiety about the internet is that it has arrived very rapidly. It's been the most rapidly diffused technology uh, or most, most rapidly diffused medium uh, in the past, uh, let me say, 100 years. That so the mobile phone might be diffusing even faster, I'm not sure. So just to illustrate, give you some figures from uh, Europe to show both how it was it's only very recently, but now we are almost at saturation. This is the figures for children aged, I say, yes, yeah, six to 17 years old who have, have used the internet. We very quickly reached saturation, given that 10 years ago we really hadn't heard um, very much about the internet at all. Uh, and you can see that in some of the countries where just in 2005 very few people had access, now in just three years those figures have jumped enormously. So we're dealing with a medium that has nearly reached the entirety of the European population. Similar figures apply, of course, in many other developed countries. Uh, and one in which just a few years have seen very rapid diffusion. 
so that if one imagines the array of um, uh, people around the child who have to respond to this transformation, it's been a period of very rapid change. Schools have had to adjust very fast to the fact that children now get their knowledge very often from Google rather than from the library. Parents have had to adjust very fast to the fact that they are familiar with rules to manage television use, but they've got to figure out now. The internet, um, all kinds of transformations have had to happen very fast. And within, uniquely for the internet, um, I suggest, we have developed the notion, partly but not entirely justified, that young people are leading in this respect. When television first came in, it came in to the relatively privileged people and trickled down in a way that we're familiar with. When the internet came in, it very often first came in um, and was used by children, and the adults around them caught up later. So we have an uh, interesting question of a reverse generation gap here. Lots of talk of parents, of children teaching parents, pupils teaching teachers, uh, children educating grandparents, um, an interesting notion of a reverse generation gap, and talk of digital natives, of this being the generation who was born into a digital age and who grows up looking around and expecting everything to be digital in a way that their parents, teachers, community leaders, others around them uh, are still immigrants in such a digital age. Well, the social scientists would also critique the extremity of the rhetoric of digital natives and digital immigrants. Uh, there are many adults who know as much as children. There are many children who don't know as much as they think they know. Uh, and there are plenty of households where parents are teaching children at least how wisely to use the internet, even if they're not the first ones on Facebook. But nonetheless, something very interesting is happening as society adjusts and those children and those surrounding them adjust to a very rapid pace of change, which is affecting um, not just their entertainment, but the way in which they learn, the mode through which they're invited to participate in society, uh, the way in which they uh, become consumers. Almost every sector of their lives, one might say, is increasingly mediated by access to the internet. The internet doesn't stand still. We're still now looking at yet further changes. It does feel both for regulators and parents and social scientists that we're always running to catch up. So the newest trends are that where the internet first arrived, at least on a computer in the living room, and governments are still advising parents to keep the internet on the computer in the living room, they are rapidly becoming superseded by the fact that uh, internet is available on a greater diversity of platforms, very notably for children on mobile platforms, uh, and sources of internet access within the home and without it um, are available in many uh, parts of their lives, many rooms in the house and so forth. So if one third of European children has access to the internet in their own room, uh, that's again a considerable uh, struggle for parents and others to keep them um, informed and safe. Uh, I'm not going to dwell in this on the question of inequalities, but any grand figures, of course, mask very considerable inequalities. There are many children for whom internet access is still difficult. Uh, there are many who have access in just one or two places and don't have those around them to guide them on using it. But 
in this, in, as, as we head towards 95% or so of children gaining access to the internet, there are very few who are wholly excluded. And in fact, this month, I think, or anyway, in these months, the British government is giving um, computers and internet access to the 20% of children whose families can't afford it so that they have access and can as it were, catch up uh, irrespective of their financial circumstances. Social scientists do, um, perhaps we shouldn't, but we are often provoked by headlines to start thinking and start critiquing about what might be of interest and how we should be uh, focusing our research priorities. And this field, I've just picked out a very few illustrative headlines, but questions of children and risk are always headline news. Uh, they reflect a kind of adult horror and incomprehension about what is happening. Uh, or what, what the possibilities are for children. Um, my, my colleagues and I recently did a content analysis of newspaper headlines and found that of all the stories across Europe about, Brit about children and the internet, twice as many were about risks than were about opportunities. Though, of course, very often we are encouraged to think about the internet primarily as a source of opportunities, new ways of learning, new ways of communicating, new ways of uh, engaging in civic participation. But the headlines are about, very often about the risks. Uh, and the reason why social science is vital and evidence is needed is that these headlines, as it were, go straight to the politicians. The politicians hear them in their, uh, in their constituencies. They hear them from the public. And there are calls for uh, regulation, which can often be restrictive both to adults and, indeed, to children themselves. So though we hear a lot about the importance of preserving adult freedom of speech, notwithstanding children's need for protection, very often the first response to this kind of headline is to take, take the internet away from children. Uh, schools ban social networking, um, children don't get internet on their mobile phone, whatever it is. Um, people install very restrictive filters. So there's a difficult question in the balance of opportunities that this new medium can offer and protection so that children are not, as it were, targeted by all the various characters so delightfully named by the media. So um, here we sit in our university reading our complicated books about social science, um, looking for some theoretical resources that will help us come to an independent and thoughtful assessment of a situation about which the public, the media, and the politicians are all screaming for some kind of response. Um, Ulrich Beck may not be the most um, amenable and accessible of um, theorists, but I think he captures something very helpful uh, in talking about the contours of a risk society, a society that he identifies with the period of late modernity, let us say the last um, few decades, of which this small world of children and the internet becomes one of very many examples. He wants us to think about a new twilight, nice word, we are not quite seeing clearly yet, this has happened very fast, but a new sense that there are opportunities and hazards, and that many of our institutions, and we might include our um, uh, technological innovations within that, 
are, as he says, no longer exclusively concerned with making nature useful or making our lives um, uh, released from traditional constraints. But we are increasingly dealing with the problems that have been created by the technology designed to solve those problems. In other words, we put huge efforts into developing an information society, a technologically mediated society, but that very development itself causes a new set of questions and problems. And so we are increasingly engaged in the task of, as he says at the end of the long quote, the political and economic management of the risks occasioned by those very technologies. And so the risk society is not, as it were, just or not primarily about the risk of uh, natural disasters or flooding or whatever, but the risks that we have created. Global warming is an obvious example, but the risk to children from the internet is another kind. Face-to-face -face communication that we understood, communication in which we could identify clearly who was being engaged with, what were the criteria of trust and authenticity. We could look around and understand the privacy conditions of our um, communication. All of this was, as it were, manageable and familiar on the internet. All of those certainties become uncertain and the parameters become open to manipulation. So as I say at the end, modernity becomes a threat and yet still the promise of emancipation from that same threat. Frustratingly, for me at least, he says um, very little about childhood in the risk society, but he does give us three ways of thinking towards uh, an analysis of childhood, which I will bring back um, to the question of the internet. So first of all, in the risk society, he talks about disembedding. Sorry, I have a stray bracket there. But the removal of or the liberation from tradition. Okay, he remains agnostic. Have we moved away from traditions in a way that is liberating? Have we moved away from traditions in a way that is um, disorienting? Perhaps both are true, uh, but social relations have in some sense become disembedded from those traditions. The result is a loss of traditional security. Um, we are questioning trust in our authorities. We doubt our practical knowledge. We are uncertain about our societal norms. We have, as he puts it elegantly, a growth of disenchantment. And remember, I said at the start that for Beck, childhood is the last remaining area of enchantment. So as the internet, to take my present case, seems to unsettle questions of what can we trust what knowledge is reliable, what relationships can we depend upon, even with whom are we in contact. Uh, there is um, a, loss of a loss of security that it seems particularly pertinent and particularly painful, perhaps, when we think about children. And then what do we see? The crucial third phase is a notion of re-embedding, a reintegration through new forms of social commitment. On the internet, we can see this in many ways. Uh, social networking kind of illustrates the point very well. Yes, social networking uh, was a technological innovation, but the way in which it's been taken up, the way in which Facebook has, we, we were somehow waiting for it as a way to do exactly what Beck says, forge new uh, social relations, actualize and make concrete our existing networks of relations, perhaps share expertise uh, through new uh, heterarchical links, um, move more to reliance on peer groups than perhaps to more traditional hierarchical 
relations. So applying that notion of the risk society specifically to childhood, Jackson and Scott then offer us an analysis which is, emphasizes both individualization, that people are in some sense um, disembedded from their traditions and traditional factors of community, of social class, of region perhaps are less important, but they have the potential to create a different kind of context. For parents, this is often very anxiety-provoking. For children, this is experienced as very liberating, and they are themselves in a state of tension. So when we do qualitative work with children, talking to them about the internet, they don't necessarily say very different things from adults who are also exploring the internet with much interest. But what one hears over and again is the sense that the internet is a space where they can take risks, where they can experiment, where new and other possibilities for identity can be explored, where the limits of certain kinds of relationships or expressions of in intimacy uh, can be played with, uh, that new forms of privacy can be sustained. The internet is a space where young people often experiment with identity precisely without parents, um, as it were, listening at bedroom doors or checking who comes in the house or getting to the phone before the child to see who they're talking to. And in, within that, often, as society says to the children, we are terrifically worried about your engagement with sex or violence or strangers or whatever, in a sense, those become the sort of the space or the, or the, the, the um, occasion for children to explore the forbidden, what it is that they are not meant to be doing. So there is a degree of risk-taking that goes on um, in addition to uh, some of the, what I will go on to say, are also genuine risks from the internet. So I took these pictures when I was doing qualitative work with children. Um, I spent a while a few years ago um, visiting. I wanted to see where the internet was. Very often I tried to hang out kind of unobtrusively, if it's possible, uh, in children's bedrooms and fitting in with them under the stairs, which is where the computer would be. Uh, these spaces did not always permit me and my um, digital recorder, uh, but I could certainly get close to the kids sometimes. This one had the computer right by the front door the minute you came in the house. Um, and I tried to listen in there and in, in watching what they did and listening to them talk about the internet um, for exactly what, um, what Tony Giddens there is talking about when he says self-actualization is a balance between opportunity and risk. Um, and for me, this is one of the key points that I think in this field we can say back to those screaming headlines and those anxious politicians that the risk and the opportunities go hand in hand. And we need to find a way of keeping both uh, in the frame together. So when they are creating a social networking profile, they are both expressing themselves and find making contacts with new people, which is exciting. And they are, of course, uh, playing with their personal information in a space in which the privacy conditions are not necessarily controllable or well understood. And their networks of networks of networks connect them with ill-intentioned strangers as well as with um, possible new and interesting peers. So there is a kind of very tight connection between the opportunities and the risks. What I observe in my research is that as children learn more about the internet, they become better at taking up the opportunities 
and they also come up against more kind of risky activities, more giving away personal information, more exposure to content that they and others would consider inappropriate or even harmful. There's a kind of going together. And of course, self-actualization is the task of childhood, the task of adolescence. Um, what are they primarily engaged with? Um, maybe we all still are, uh, even as adults, but certainly as adolescents, that question of who am I, who could I be, what possibilities can I explore, uh, is crucial. And I think these sort of little intimate spaces are also important when you consider that many of these children have the front door very firmly closed in a way that was not the case for um, many of us when we were children. So for today's children, chances to go out, chances to play in the street, chances to go and um, catch a bus to the swimming pool or whatever are heavily restricted. And I was walking to the tube the other day, I heard a strange adult accost a young boy who looked to be about eight, who was cycling to school. And this man, he wasn't a stranger, he was a dad, but he couldn't stop himself saying, are you cycling to school on your own? which to me, you know, in a sense, it broke the rule. This was a stranger accosting a child. Um, but he was a concerned parent, and he was worried about what used to be absolutely commonplace, young children cycling to school, but now has become a serious risk. So these children are doing their self-actualization, if you like, under the stairs and in the cupboard by the front door. Um, but they're also doing it in the whole of the world, the online world. Sociologists of childhood point to attention in the way in which we think about childhood and the way in which we have framed childhood in the last uh, half century, let us say. Um, children are staying in education longer. They stay living at home longer, often far longer now than their parents would wish. Um, they get their jobs later because they're staying in education longer. So their period of childhood is extended. At the same time, they are target, targeted by marketing companies much younger. Average age now for getting a mobile phone is about eight years old. Um, they are sexualized younger. They are expected to, as it were, be young sexual beings much younger than they ever were before. They are given more money younger. And in that sense, they are getting um, older, ever younger. So the period of self-actualization is being historically extended. Uh, and yet the opportunities for the experimentation which that period has traditionally been associated with are getting fewer. Hence the extraordinary anxieties and fascination, I think, of the internet. So, social scientists try to theorise, we try to think what, what is going on in the broader picture, we try to stand back and ask some more abstract uh, conceptual questions about why children on the internet are so fascinating, but we also, of course, want to get some evidence. So I'll tell you a little bit about some evidence. Evidence is always both itself fascinating and yet at the same time, uh, in some ways, a rather frustrating reduction from our imaginative conceptual space to the realities of what, in fact, we can ask children, what we can practically measure, uh, what research has even been conducted, so what evidence is available. So in the EU Kids Online project, we were um, research teams in each of the countries with a colour here. Uh, so in 21 countries, we were research teams 
And we said, okay, let us find out. What do we know about children and the internet? And we all, in our different countries, in our different languages, collected together the numbers of the available studies that have been done, and then we met and had a series of fascinating conversations about what it told us. Um, is children's experience of the internet the same in all of these countries? Is it different in some systematic ways that we might understand? Um, is our knowledge of children and the internet uh, facilitated or impeded by the available research methods and particularly questions of ethics? Um, because many of the risky things we would like to ask children about cannot be asked about. Is research keeping up with the rapid pace of change? I can tell you it is not. Uh, there is almost no study about what might go wrong for children on their, with the internet access on their mobile phone. The internet in the research world is still this thing here, the desktop. It's certainly not very mobile. Um, but still, we found a lot of research, and I'll just give you a little hint about some of the findings that we concluded from that. Uh, and in addition, we tried to generate some principles about how this research should be conducted and represented, because it is very easy in this particular domain to offer findings that will be reappropriated by um, certain political constituencies, certain moral constituencies, certain kind of regulatory um, uh, imperatives, which um, might do disservice to the message of the research, at least as the researchers would see it. So we did also emphasize the importance of thinking about research in a way that is child-centered. How do they see it? What is the context within which they experience certain risks and opportunities? To keep it contextual, to keep thinking about the real-world context in which children encounter certain experiences. To think comparatively so that we get a sense of perspective, more here, less there, what does it mean? Uh, and to retain a critical perspective on the very many often uh, polarised or extreme claims that are made about uh, children's experience of the internet. We also, as a result of um, our research deliberations, tried to provide some kind of order on um, what is a rather messy conceptual field of opportunities and risks as I think about it. When Giddens says self-actualisation is a matter of balancing opportunities and risks, you can comb his work, but you won't find anything very precise about what he means on the opportunities and what he means on the risks. Um, but we uh, instead combed the available research literature to say what kinds of opportunities and risks are researchers concerned about uh, and how does this relate also to policymakers, parents, and even children themselves. So we decided um, it was always important to keep opportunities and risks on the, same state, on the same page because if you just focus on the one, it is easy to forget about the other and initiatives that address one can even worsen the circumstances for the other. And we thought it was also important, drawing on uh, both the psychology and sociology of childhood, to think about children's role uh, in this new online world in a range of different ways. Very easy. Um, it's very easy to think about the child always as recipient, the child in the passive position, perhaps as beneficiary, perhaps as victim. It's um, more challenging but more interesting and uh, realistic to think also about the child as a participant in the online world, in some ways making contacts and generating both opportunities and risks. And in some ways the child 
um, as an actor, engages in various kinds of online conduct, some of which are really very creative and thought-provoking and interesting, and some of which position the child not so much as victim, but as perpetrator of risks. And one of the most difficult things for policymakers to think about as they talk about regulating the internet or educating children in the use of the internet has been to think about the question of um, children as perpetrators. So then, in a kind of a, a horrible reduction of about 400 pieces of research, this network scrunched down all the findings to say, well, we could say something about the kind of incidence of risks that children experience online. Um, we could only say some things across Europe in a very few cells. All my other cells remain for future research. They're all gaps. Um, but we could say something about some of these um, cells. And as I said at the start, every finding produces a new set of questions. So the finding that something like 20% of European teenagers say they have received some kind of bullying or harassing message on the internet, both suggests certain policy actions would be appropriate, but it also raises questions. How do they define bullying? How serious are these problems? How do they cope? How long-term are the consequences? Do they just say, okay, that happened, forget it, moving on? Or do they become then a kind of vulnerable child who gets bullied um, offline in the rest of their lives. Um, if we think of it from a child-centered point of view, a finding generates a new set of questions. 10% of children, this is, sorry, this is a bit misleading, 10% of European children, very roughly, uh, say that they have gone to an offline meeting with somebody they met. You shouldn't say 10% being groomed. Sorry, that's a mistake. Most of those meetings are with a friend of a friend who is their age, and what they did was they chatted about what they wanted to buy in the shops and had ice cream and went home. Um, so mostly it was fine, and it really speaks to me of the importance of following through on findings so that you always get them in perspective. But there are sufficient grounds for concern. So in many surveys across Europe, including in this country, something like 15% of children say they have really been upset or felt threatened or felt distressed by something that happened to them online. And I think about that 15% and there's a whole set of questions. Is that, how many would say that if you ask them what happens in their offline lives? Is that a large figure? Is it a small figure? We could debate it. Is it a figure that merits some kind of policy attention? Yes, I think it is. But it's a minority of children. And we don't yet know which minority it is. We don't really know even is it older or younger, more boys or girls, more working class, middle class. We don't know any of those things. A survey conducted by the Department for Children's Schools and Families here last month showed that about one in three teenagers in this country says they have received a bullying message on the internet, but only about 13%, um, so it's about one in eight, says that they have been persistently harassed in this way, and twice as many say they have been bullied in the street in their classroom. So we have to pursue all these questions. We have to keep asking every time we hear a statistic, in what context, what does that mean? How do we follow up? But when we pursue them, we come to a more realistic assessment, I think, 
but we still feel, we still see that there are grounds for concern. Getting things in perspective. There are lots of ways of getting things in perspective, but it's what I think social scientists are duty-bound to do. Um, one way is to try to understand why the phenomenon of interest varies in different places. This was just one attempt that we made, which was to try to see how online risk related to degree of use, low, medium, and high use on, against the European average, and to take that as the opportunity to start asking why. What do we think is going on in Cyprus and Italy that relatively few children have access to the internet and they don't really have experienced so very many online risks? Um, why is we can we, uh, but it already tells us some <coughs> interesting <coughs> things as well we can see that as internet use spreads across Europe so does the experience of risks we don't have countries where children get access to the internet and they're free of all the risks um, nor do we have children particularly who experience all kinds of risks even though they have low access we have an interesting group here, which says to me, as internet use spreads, so will the risk spread, but there might be different reasons for that. Um, and I've put these countries uh, neatly in alphabetical order, but actually the research team decided in the end that there were really two reasons for this. And one, which I would describe as including um, Iceland, Netherlands, Norway, and the UK, was countries where the internet had been around for quite a while. It was well um, appropriated into many social uh, practices and institutions. And those children were digital natives in the sense of really being more skilled and doing all kinds of things, some of which are risky. Estonia, Poland, and Slovenia, on the other hand, were countries where internet had arrived incredibly rapidly ahead of the possibly protective activities of parents um, schools and communities and these are the children who are kind of casting about for almost anything to do on the internet and bumping into various kinds of risks um, so they search for one thing and they find themselves on a porn site whatever it is they are a different group anyway my point is as soon as you start making comparisons you start getting things a bit into perspective and you start asking why here's another kind of way of getting things into perspective, rather a fascinating report actually by the um, Risk Commission a couple of years ago, which looked at all the bad things that happened to children in this country. So they pulled together findings from a whole different set of areas. And I've put in red the ones that are discussed in relation to the internet and possibly may have some kind of online bearing. But of course the first point is that the things that parents fear the most, their children being abducted or murdered, remain extremely rare. And in fact, I think there's no evidence that they have increased. Um, things that parents maybe should worry about a bit more, I don't know, maybe I won't. I have another obesity lecture, but today I won't give you my obesity lecture. Um, maybe parents should worry a bit more about um, road accidents. Um, or being murdered by the parents. So in relation to how do we fit, how do we get online risks in perspective with the rest of children's lives? 
Well, we can see that if abductions by strangers are extremely few, that even if we could establish that the internet played some role in an abduction, we're still talking about very few, albeit the most serious cases. Quite a lot of children experience sexual abuse from somebody they know, quite a high proportion. And there is increasing speculation that the internet is not um, uh, generating this problem, but is becoming implicated in this problem because those cases of abuse often involve the creation of images which are then circulated online and become part of a, a kind of exacerbation um, of the problem. Perhaps the sizable proportion of teenagers with gambling difficulties do have their problems exacerbated by the internet. That can only be a hypothesis at the moment because we don't know. Um, victims of crime, the crime surveys include so very many different things. Perhaps some of those occur on the internet. The most common threat in childhood remains the threat of being bullied. In other words, the most dangerous person to a child is another child, which is a thought to conjure with. Uh, and surveys there are not in the tens or hundreds or thousands. They are up to one third, and some estimates say two thirds of all children. So, just tell you what I'm thinking about now, say a couple of words about policy and then stop in case you have questions. What I'm thinking about now is to try to think about questions of vulnerability uh, as the online and the offline complement each other and perhaps um, uh, exacerbate each other. So it seems to me that we still should think about most children in the category who are neither victims offline or indeed victims online. Child protection services have always addressed these children, the children who are in some ways victimised offline. And then we have two new questions. Are the children who are vulnerable offline now additionally becoming vulnerable online? Is it the bullied child in the playground who gets then bullied in their social networking site? Is it the abused child at home? whom pictures are circulated on the internet. So a kind of migration of problems. Or are we seeing something new in which children who have always been perfectly fine in their everyday lives are finding the internet a newly exciting, risky place to experiment where they come up against problems which they have not been prepared for or protected against. And all I can say is at the moment we do not know how many children might go in any of these categories, what might discriminate them either demographically or psychologically, and how important either of these two lines, these two arrows, is. So that's the new research agenda, or one of the new research agendas, I would suggest. And it is partly being taken up by the policymakers. Policymakers struggle with lots of problems. On the internet, nobody knows you're a child. It's one of the huge problems. Nobody knows you're a child. No one can address you because you're a child. No one has any way of telling you're a child. Um, all the age verification technologies seem to be flawed or too intrusive on civil liberties ever to implement, and there are too many get-arounds. Nobody really wants to do this, so we need to find another strategy uh, to addressing some of these risks then. Banning um, internet access. 
And everyone sort of knows that this is right. Even if we can ameliorate some of these problems on the internet, these are not going to be policies that solve the problems of childhood. There will still be many things going on. But those concerned with the internet and regulation might be able to make some inroads. And to that end, I'd point in this country to the um, uh, policy review that was conducted, um, I think it came out at the end of 2008 by Tanya Byron, uh, set up by the Prime Minister to review what should be done and who should take responsibility. Should internet risks to children be addressed within education as a matter of teachers, by teachers? Is it something that the industry could be dealing with? Is this something that social workers and child protection workers should be addressing? Is it parents who are primarily responsible? Is it children themselves who should be taught to take care of themselves? The Byron Review set up what's called the UK Council for Child Internet Safety, um, and that's a body which is now um, an independent body that draws together all of these different uh, sectors or represents all of these different sectors, but especially education, regulators and industry to try to um, come up with some policies that will improve matters. And on that body, I chair the research panel, so I have to produce the research that will inform what is done. We're at the point where we say there are all kinds of organisations that somehow in a multi-sectorial, multi-stakeholder society should have some role to play. No one wants any one of these players to bear sole responsibility. Um, as researchers, we keep saying over and again, think about keeping the risks and the opportunities in balance. Think about the relation between the risks online compared to the offline risks. <coughs> Don't forget to be critical of all these headline findings that you see in the um, newspapers that say, quick, ban the internet, stop kids going online. Um, but think, how can they variously come together so that children can indeed benefit from the opportunities online, but at the same time, uh, they can also avoid some more of the risks. So, thank you. I think probably those who have to go to a lecture at two should probably zoom straight off, but... Uh, I don't have to zoom off if people do want to ask questions for another five or ten minutes. Five minutes, anyway. Yeah. Is it, is it known why in France and Germany the online risk was low? Um. There's been, well, in some ways, um, access is, is slower. Both countries have, for I think different reasons, been slower to get access to the internet, and it's partly been a bit delayed. So in France, there was that whole, um, was it Minitel? There was a whole different technological route taken that just meant the internet arrived later. Um, Germany, there were different reasons, partly to do with the fusion of East and West and kind of very different kind of economic um, challenges. Um, 
but perhaps there are different cultures of parenting where there is more restrictive approaches to children. Um, Germany, like Britain, is distinctive for having um, a lot of investment in really great resources for children online. And one of the things we found in our comparison was if children had great places to go, they were, as it were, safer. So many children in this country go to Children's BBC online. Germany does something similar. My colleagues in the Czech Republic or Slovenia or um, you know, various other countries, they, there is nothing in Slovenian or Czech for children. So what are they to do? Well, they just cast around vaguely and they find many wrong things. So I think there's a combination of factors, but we don't understand very well yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a, a policy question. Uh, do you know if the UK's CCIS has any input into the current digital economy bill that's being discussed in the House of Lords? Bill, I think um, there are several key parts. Well, at least in the Digital Britain report that informed it, uh, the policy of media literacy was crucial, and um, they're calling it UKIS now. It's a nice acronym, UKIS. Anyway, um, so that sense of taking the educational burden um, is something that UKIS is taking forward uh, and is, if you like, a necessary requirement for rolling out universal broadband and increasing home access and so forth. So they are um, compatible policies, yes. And one of the things that UKIS is now doing is, um, is in fact, recently got uh, internet safety into teacher training programs and as a requirement in the national curriculum. And it's doing, uh, perhaps not as effectively as some would like, a public awareness campaign to make everyone aware of the challenges they must take on. And it's in that context that people feel more sanguine about getting access out there to everybody. How compatible was the measurement of internet risk in the different countries? That's a good question. The um, body that I should have mentioned and didn't is the European Commission's Safer Internet Programme, which in fact funds my work and quite a lot of the work in this field. Um, and it comes under DG Information Society. And they have, uh, in the last five years, um, generated a series of surveys across Europe or in different countries. And it sustained a research community such that people have started to co coincide on the best ways of asking questions or the most effective ways of asking questions. And so in the last few years, we see that the surveys begin to use the same questions and similar samples in different countries, and then we can compare better. But a lot of the early research, people asked the question, you know, they had such different definitions of what they might mean by pornography or what they might be concerned about for personal information or privacy, that it was a, you, you can't compare. Um, so we're getting to the point of being able to make comparisons, and what I'm doing in the next year is um, conducting a survey for the Safer Internet Programme that will ask exactly the same questions in every country. Uh, and then we will have the best comparative data we might, though it is difficult. So if I say, because my current worry, bullying, is a word that is completely familiar to everyone in this country and another others, but doesn't exist as a word in most European languages, you can see that it is actually very hard to ask European children about whether they're bullied on the internet. You have to 
explain exactly what you mean and then worry that when it goes into Portuguese, it's the same as when it goes into Polish. So we'll never get really perfectly comparable measures, but we're only do good enough research. Qualitative work I um, talked about myself doing was just done in this country, but um, I'm, as it were, within the network, colleagues have done similar kinds of research in other countries. Qualitative work is the hardest to compare um, because it's done in every language, uh, and quantitative, you know, you can put all your survey findings into one big SPSS spreadsheet and you're away. 